You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Check one, two, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And today we kick off our habitat improvement series. And the reason that I wanted to get into habitat a little bit this spring is because I don't know shit about habitat improvement. And I know there's a lot of people out there who listen to this podcast and they hunt on properties where they can do some type of habitat improvement work. And so what I wanted to do is throughout this spring, I wanted to bring on some people who know a lot about this stuff. And today's guest is no exception. We're going to be talking with returning guest Tom Peplinski. Now, Tom Peplinski uh, and I have a history together. We used to work together um, in a different venue, and now he comes on the podcast and shares his experience. He is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to habitat work, not only on his own, own farm, but he is also a habitat consultant, uh, a deer hunting cons- farm ground consultant, whatever you want to say, on how to improve properties for better deer hunting. And so he shares some of his um some of his ideas and I really think it's awesome because unlike most people and this is one of one of the ideas he brings to the table is that he doesn't care where deer are in April May June July August all he cares about is that the property that he is hunting is set up to hold deer during the hunting seasons so that that property becomes a sponge and the neighbors don't kill the deer and they're on your property and it helps you manage the not only necessarily your farm but your area as well and so he gets into what he calls his thick and thin 
uh, his thick and thin message and or uh, approach, I guess you would say, the thick and thin approach to uh, habitat improvement. And uh, it's a good one, man. He's a, he's an intelligent gentleman with a lot of great ideas. So listen closely and, and pull some of this information out. Uh, at the end of the podcast, he gives out his uh, information on how you can get a hold of him. Uh, and if you're looking for some kind of, uh, I guess, uh, a habitat consultant in the Midwest, he's your guy, especially in Iowa. So, uh, that's what today's podcast is about. Uh, I'm thinking I'm going to do about three or four, maybe five of these, depending on how they, uh, depending on, on what kind of reach they get. Uh, but I want to get the, this out there and I want to add, sprinkle this, uh, habitat talk into, uh, into the content that I'm putting out. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. And I think it's something interesting for you public land guys to listen to as well and I actually I might get someone on who manages public land like a state agency to get on and and ask how they manage public land for hunting so there's that all right before we get into today's episode though um, please listen to these commercials man because listening to these commercials and listening to the the commercials that ran previously are is how I get paid and that keeps this content free and it keeps me doing what I'm doing and I get to put out this awesome content with some of the best deer hunters and, and just outdoorsmen in general and so I you know I really appreciate you guys listening to these advertisements so if you're looking for a saddle look no further than tethered uh, tethered offers saddles saddle hunting platforms saddle hunting accessories climbing sticks and then behind their products you have this community of people that equals a wealth of knowledge when it comes to shortening your learning curve on how to become a better saddle hunter. So uh, go check out Tethered's website and check out all their products and then go onto YouTube and their website and there's a ton of content on there that you can absorb and help make you a better saddle hunter. Next on the list is Wasp Archery. If you're looking for, in my opinion, one of the best broadheads on the market, uh, or, or best brand of broadhead on the market, you got to check out Wasp. A majority of their heads are still made in America, and uh, I'm a huge fan of the Boss 4-blade for my fixed blade option, and then the Jackhammer 3-blade for my uh, mechanical option. And I'll just tell you this, they destroy whatever they hit. Uh, it's design, it's the engineering, and it's the material that makes Wasp what it is. If you're looking to be more present throughout the hunting season, you need to have hunt stand on your phone. This allows you to be in the game all year round. And what I mean by that is, you know, anytime you have downtime, you're <laughs> sitting on the toilet or you're waiting for your kids to get done with a practice, pull your phone out, hop on hunt stand and take a look at all of the, uh, all the properties you can, you can, um, like daydream scenarios where, okay, if a buck comes in this way, or I have a trail camera here, or the wind direction's this, I need to access route here, blah, blah, blah. And what this does is allows you to prepare for the hunting season without having to be in the woods. On top of that, it allows you to journal all in journal and document everything that you see and find in the woods and so that's why i'm a huge fan of hunt stand be sure to check out their pro whitetail platform and uh, it's a little bit of an upgrade but it's got a ton of great information so go read up on all that functionality on huntstand.com 
last but not least the whole crew over at vortex optics i'm trying i'm trying to get these guys to jump into bed with me a little bit on a, a content idea that i've passed their way and so they're thinking about it so there might be something cool happening between myself and vortex later on this year and i hope it works out but if it doesn't no big deal vortex optics is in my opinion the pinnacle of a company that represents their customers and what i mean by that is they sell firearm accessories and optics right and so you want the people who work for that company to be experts in firearm optics or binoculars or spotting scopes or how to use their products in the field if you're a hunter or a sporting shooter a sport shooter and so these guys are the real deal they have a a very high quality lineup of a variety of optics binocular i don't know why i'm slowing down here binoculars rangefinders, spotting scopes red dots rifle scopes you name it they have it and they also have the vip warranty you break it bust it buy it or i don't know buy it but you break it you uh you break it you bust it you put it in a box you send it back to them they fix it for free and then they send it back to you at no charge so that's uh what i call customer service and uh, they also sell some pretty cool accessories that i'm looking forward to using this upcoming year and that is their new tripod so when i head out west to go do some spot and stock uh, i'm gonna have a sturdy base for this badass vortex uh, uh, tripod that's come out so go check that out vortexoptics.com and i forgot to mention the discount code for wasp is what was it it was nfc20 for 20 percent off of wasp archery products so go check that out and then the last thing i want to talk about real quick is two percent for conservation if you are looking to give back in 2023 go check out two percent for conservation at fishandwildlife.org there's the commercials. Let's get into today's podcast with my man, Tom Peplinski. Three, two, one. All right, my fellow Iowan here, Mr. Tom Peplinski. How we doing, man? Real good, Dan. Good morning to you. Yeah, yeah. So did you get ice or snow this week? A little of both, and it's snowing right now, actually. It's like sideways snowing. It's so darn windy out. Okay. So we don't have anything. I mean, it... Other than ice from yesterday, still on everything, we don't have any snow, but it sounds like uh, what you're going to get, I'm going to get, so it's coming. Yeah, we we did get like eight inches of snow earlier, but it's gone. Yeah. It, it melted off because the ground's no longer frozen and stuff, but yeah, yeah, it looks like spring, but it doesn't feel like it. There you go. Hey, uh, question, are, are you a shed guy? Do you go out looking for sheds at all? Yeah, my wife is a fanatic. I call her the shed whisperer. <laughs> she, she's a fanatic, and she gets a lot too. Yeah. And then, and then I just my eyes wander. You yeah. know, I'm looking at other things, so I can walk right over one. But we we go, but we usually don't go until March. We kind of wait until it's all done. Yeah. Um, I just I pulled a camera here not too long ago, and there was a bunch of bucks with full racks. And my wife saw one, I think, just last night with a full rack. Yep. Yep. So we, we go and we go and we think it's kind of done. Yeah. So. Do you remember the story I told you earlier this year of that, that like six year old buck who only had a 120 inch rack and he was kicking the crap out of all these yep. other bucks. Yep. Yep. So he showed up on cell cam last night with, um, there was 
I think there was 10 or 11 deer in the actual picture, but he showed up with both, you know, horns still on. So yeah, a lot of these deer are still packing. Yeah. Yep. And so I don't know, I'm looking forward to getting out and I just, I have a little bit of cabin fever right now. I mean, it's just been a kind of a miserable February. There hasn't even been a lot of sunshine this, this month. No, there was some really nice days. I actually did a lot of, um, I know we're going to talk about habitat work today, but I did a lot of habitat work and now I've been doing a little bit of home remodeling for some people in the area and stuff. And then hopefully we'll get a couple nice days. It looks like next week's supposed to be really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out and, and, uh, maybe putting a little bit of corn in front of some of the trail cameras just to get an inventory of what's out there and, and, uh, go check my stands maybe and go check my cameras and basically just, I just want to get outside. Yeah. Yep. The same. Yeah. All right. And so you, you kind of prefaced what this, uh, conversation is going to be about today and that's habitat. Now for me, I don't know anything about habitat improvement or how to keep deer on your property other than what I've learned from guys like you and some of the other guys um, who are contributors on the Sportsman's Empire Network here. And so the only thing I know is like cut some trees down and let the sunlight get to the floor, the forest floor, and that creates thickness. And then that's all I know. Right. And it's just regurgitated information. So I kind of want to start at the very beginning. Uh, or, or somewhat at the beginning, when you first moved to Iowa, okay, and you and you got the properties that you you bought, because how many how many total acres do you own? I own one farm that's 120 acres. That's 70 acres of what I would consider hunting. Yep. And then the 80 by the house. Yep. So okay. Two different farms, and the 80 by the house is, as you know, it's just a small, like, Finger. draw that runs through the middle. Yeah. 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 And so. When, when you, when you first moved to Iowa and you got the, you know, you picked up these farms and you you purchased them, how soon after that did you say to yourself, Hey, I need, I want to do some habitat work. So in, in 2012, we bought the 120 acres. Um, and that winter already, we went nuts with chainsaws. Yeah. So we bought that. I'm trying to think. Um, probably like in April, March or April of 2012. And I had a non-resident muzzleloader tag. My son did and my dad did. And we hunted for probably three days. And then my dad went home for Christmas and my son and I stayed and had chainsaws. And we pretty much just gave up our muzzleloader hunt and started to work. Gotcha. That, that, that farm needed a ton of work. Yeah. It, it won't, it won't, I don't care what kind of food plots and stuff you'd put on it. It just won't hold deer. It was just wide open. Like you said, Yeah. Um, all closed canopy, um, big timber. So gotcha. it started right away within months after buying it. Okay. And so when you walked through, was that the 40 or the 120? That's the 120. 120. Okay. So when you were walking through that, that property, how did you identify what needed to be done? And then how did you prioritize that? So I've, I've been lucky in my life to have had some experiences where I've learned and what to do and not to do and make mistakes. Yep. And I, you know, I've, so I've made a, I've made mistakes in the past. I'll fully admit that. Um, but when I bought that farm in 2012, 
I think a lot of the mistakes, not that I'm perfect now or whatever, but a lot of the mistakes were made and I had a really good idea of what I wanted to do it before we even owned it. Okay. Um, just, just by walking it the first time. And that farm is big enough as far as acreage that I could set up a pretty good bed to feed pattern. Um, that would be like self-contained right on that farm. So that's, that's what I targeted on that farm. I, I planned out, you know, where my food plots were going to be, where I could have my bedding cover, um, you know, potentially where I could, um, prioritize doe bedding and buck bedding. So, so that's what I went after was setting up this bed to feed pattern. And then always in a mind set of not just doing this stuff, but as I'm doing it, how can I create it in a way that makes deer kind of go where I, you know, manipulate, put it that way, manipulate the habitat so that the deer kind of go where I want them to go so that not only is it just good habitat, but it's also makes it easier to hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And so was this a, like before you went in there, cause I hear these stories about people just going in with chains, chainsaws and making a mess of things. Did you do that or did you actually sit down at a desk with some paper and a map of the property and plan out like a one year, two year, five year, 10 year, uh, I get breakdown of what you want to do accomplish short and long term. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, for myself, I didn't do a one-year, you know, five-year, ten-year breakdown because in my mind, I, I could, I could see it. Okay. So, like, when I'm helping, if I'm helping another hunter, I'll do that. I'll, I'll break it down. You know, this is, this is what you should prioritize in year one. This is kind of where you should try to be in year three and year five. And they, you know, people will ask me to do that for them, so they know what to prioritize. Yeah. Um, for me, I didn't, you know, I just didn't have to do that because in my mind. I knew what I wanted. Gotcha. Um, but so it's a little bit of both. You know, I wanted to create this bed to feed pattern, mm-hmm. and that farm had about a fifty-acre block of timber that was a lot of mature shake bar hickory, closed canopy, no underbrush at all. I mean, you could stand in the woods and see for. If it wasn't for the rolling hills, you could see for for probably four hundred yards. I mean, it was just wide open. Yeah. Um. So it was a lot of pockets of cover. So you'd, you'd go with a chainsaw really hard on maybe, let's say, I'm just throwing out numbers, a half an acre. So you would kind of make a mess in that half an acre. And then you would skip 50, 60 yards and then make another mess. Okay. And in, in some areas, if it was, so that was where it would be like all shake bark hickory, where I wanted all the trees terminated. Yeah. So in the heavy spots, it would be a lot of cutting down the trees. If they were a little bit smaller, you could try to hinge cut them, but I don't really want hickories hinged necessarily. Um, the only advantage of a hinge cut tree that you want terminated is it keeps that it keeps the tree off the ground, which creates some side cover for you. Gotcha. Whereas opposed to if you do, because uh, you can girdle 
for example, you can girdle hickory pretty effectively and it kills them. And that's where you cut around the, the base, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the problem with only doing a girdle or only like there's another method where you take a, a hatchet and you hack into the cambium layer and you squirt a herbicide in there to kill the tree. Yeah. The problem with only doing that is the tree is dead, but now it takes sometimes three, four, five years from my experience before you get that ideal horizontal or side cover. Yeah. Because those trees are standing and you're you're relying on Mother Nature with the with the new growth to create that cover instantly. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if you do a com so you can actually do a combination of girdling and hack and squirt and stumping the trees and and hinge cutting. And ideally what you want is a really nice blend of open canopy. You want some side cover. Um, a good rule of thumb is to get down on your knees, get on the ground, like simulating a, a deer's bedding, and just kind of look around. And if, if you're doing if you're doing this habitat work and you can still see 60, 70 yards out, you you haven't been aggressive enough, in my opinion. Okay. So then you can just keep cutting. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, but a pretty effective and easy way to not screw up is to just do that thick and thin method where you just you hammer the hell out of one spot and then you move over. Yeah. And then you and then you hammer the hell out of another spot and then you move over. And that way those deer can actually bed around that thick spot. Yep. But they still have the kind of the open areas to go in and out. Gotcha. So you mentioned shag bark hickories were a specific target for you. How did you determine what what trees to keep and what trees to cut down? So again, that's just been that's just been based on experience on what I see deer like to bet around and what I like to see what I what I think they like to browse so the so for example i don't see deer eating too much shag bark hickory there's okay. just i mean the the nuts i suppose maybe for squirrels if you're a squirrel hunter for a deer hunter i've never seen a, a deer eat a, a hickory nut um so i just decided i wanted all those terminated okay on the con on the flip side of that is like a box elder tree so most timber people will say a box elder tree is useless. There's no timber value, but deer absolutely love to browse box elder. So if I see a box elder tree, very rarely, rarely will I terminate it. I'll either cut it down and let it stump sprout or I'll hinge cut it and, and let it stay alive for the, for the deer can eat the, the living tree. That's now horizontal on the ground. Um, it's just different things like that. Um, red oaks and white oaks, deer love to browse, so I'll either hinge those or I'll or I'll stump them and let the sprouts come up from the stump. Um, things like hackberry, um, I haven't, haven't had too much success with deer browsing them, so I'll normally kill those. Black locust and honey locust, I'll kill those, meaning I'll either girdle them and treat the girdle or I'll stump them and, and treat the stump because I don't want them coming back. Yeah. Um, if somebody's not comfortable with that, you can call the DNR or just, you know, you can Google that stuff. It's real easy. Yeah. Um, oaks, ash, um, elm, any of your dogwoods, elderberries. Um, why off the top of my head, you know, when I see them, I know, but I, I, I never will kill those trees. I'll either stump them and let them grow from the stump or, or hinge cut them, let them keep growing. Okay. 
All right. And is and is there a reason for that? Obviously, oak makes acorns, deer eat acorns, but what about those other trees? Just because the deer like to browse. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean if you have if you've ever cut down an elderberry um and just let it you know, like let's say in August, cut down an elderberry tree, the deer will go nuts for it. Right. You'll come back two days later and it'll look like that tree fell over three months ago because all the leaves and stuff and all the nubs and everything will be eaten off of it. Gotcha. So when I've seen this in the past, it's not like I, it's not like I know, you know, I knew this stuff or I was born knowing this stuff, but when I've seen stuff like that in nature just happen on its own, then I've always just kind of made a mental note of that. Oh, okay. Deer really like elderberry. <laughs> you know, they really like box elder. So then that's kind of what I've targeted. Cause I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to create the best timber value. Um, I'm trying to make the best deer habitat. Yeah. Gotcha. And so we're cutting down trees now. All right. You, you go in and you've, you've kind of said to yourself, Hey, I want these trees cut down now. And, and then you've also mentioned this thick and thin method, right? You cut a whole bunch, then you skip some, some timber and you go to the next part. And this is obviously for, for timbered properties. How do you, how do you, uh, decide as far as terrain layout is concerned, where to go thick and where to go thin? Because, you know, sometimes these fingers can be pretty steep. We can have a big ridge. We can have a flat, basically top, you know. So how do you, how do you do that in conjunction with, uh, certain terrain features? So let's just kind of start with the bedding itself. Um, deer will bed anywhere so deer deer will bed in the ditch alongside the road but the but the thing that people need to understand is there's certain things that deer want to do so if you give them if you give them what they want then that's where they'll bed yeah so as opposed to where they're forced to bed you see you see what the difference is kind of yep yep so if you can when i when i said that that farm was large enough had enough acreage that i could set up a bed to feed pattern on it the first thing is I did is I tried to create a bunch of these pockets thin and thick along field edges and along my food plots that I had planned out. And what I was trying to do there is promote doe and fawn family groups to bed closer to food, which is what they want to do if they're allowed to do that. Okay. And then what that does is that creates space for bucks to bed farther away from food because We've talked about this in the past too, that these bucks don't want to be around seven or eight does and fawns and all this commotion. They don't want that. So what I try to do is kind of like stack my does and fawns in and around my food sources and then had the back part of the farm where I had this thin and thick and thin and thick pockets of bedding cover that would hold the maximum amount of bucks that I, that I thought I could possibly put on that farm. So that, that's one scenario. So, you know, you can always think about it that way is trying to stack your deer in those and fawns close to bedding, uh, excuse me, those and fawns close to food and then bucks farther away from food. If you can get them two, 300 yards, 400 yards away from a food source and create some bedding, as long as there's bedding close to food, that's been my most successful way. Um, of keeping the most amount of deer on my farm and, and attracting the most bucks. Okay. And so as you're doing this, what 
time of year are you thinking about? I mean, obviously for hunting, you want things to be right for hunting from that bed to food pattern. So you can, you know, get a shot at, you know, said deer, but how are you also thinking about habitat? Because you want deer on your property all year round. So how do you like, how are you making a decision say, Hey, I want deer here in the summer. And I also want deer here in the winter. How are you making these habitat decisions based off of keeping deer all year round? So I guess that's where I, I might differ from a lot of hunters. Um, and I would just respectfully disagree that I don't care where they are in the summer. Okay. So when I make my habitat and I'm going to qualify this cause I think it's re- really important when I make my habitat, it's all about, about when they shed their velvet until late muzzleloader ends. Yeah. That's, that's what I want my attractiveness to be is for that time period. And it's because I don't have a thousand acres, 2000 acres. I think if you have a thousand acres or 2000 acres, then you can do the type of habitat where, um, where you provide great fawning cover and great, uh, June, July, and August, like these oak savannas are, are really popular on YouTube and stuff now, but I don't have the acreage that I can say, well, I'm going to set this 30 acres aside over here for an oak savanna, for example, Okay. because that oak savanna in October, November, December is useless to me. Yeah. So I want to set all my habitat work up in my attractiveness, like my peak attractiveness. I want to be October, November, December on both of my farms. So I'll sacrifice summer food, summer habitat, summer bedding, all that stuff for fall habitat and fall food. Yeah. And I think that's really important because a lot of hunters, I would say the vast majority of hunters listening to this podcast right now, if you ask them, Hey, what's your goal with your land? Why are you even, why are you even doing this habitat work? And they're going to say they want to have probably older age class bucks on their property and they want more of them. Yeah. So whether they want to take two or two year olds to three year olds or maybe three year olds to four year olds or whatever it may be and more of them, they're all going to say that. Yeah. And then the next question is, well, how can they're not there now? What's, what's the limiting factor? Why don't you, why don't you have three or four five-year-old bucks on your property? And the answer is always, well, because they get shot. They're shot when they're one or two. That's just the reality of it. Yep. So then you got to ask, you just got to keep on asking why. So then you say, oh, if they're all getting shot, what's happening? Why are they getting shot? Well, the neighbors are shooting them. It's just, just kind of this progression. Yep. So if you want to grow big bucks, if you want to hunt big bucks, and I'm not saying that you have to do that. I, I'm absolutely not saying that. But if that's what you want to do, then you really need to target your habitat so you can protect the deer when they're getting shot. And that's not in June. Right. So I don't, I don't think there's too many places where the white tails are in this country, where they struggle in the summertime to get their, their habitat and their food. I, I suppose there's some places that, that there are, but drought just, or, you know, yeah. drought or, or yep. really dry conditions. But you know, in a Midwestern state where, yes, it, it's really dry and maybe sometimes some EHD pops up. As far as food is concerned, there, you know, 
in Iowa, they got food, especially in river bottom ground. It's, yeah, as far as food and habitat, I just, I've never been to a farm where... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Where a hunter has said, oh, I have, I have a dozen mature bucks running around on my land, but they're all really small because we just don't have the habitat. Right. It's just not, that's just not the case. It's always because they're not old enough. Right. So if they're not old enough, as a hunter, in my opinion, if that's what your goal is, you need to target your best habitat in the fall and early winter so that you can, you know, quote unquote, protect those deer from getting shot by somebody else. Yeah. So that's what I target on my farms. I don't, you know, as opposed to kind of going back to that, if you had a thousand acres or more, you can have more of a diverse um, habitat scheme. You can you can set aside a 30 acre oak white oak flat and turn it into an oak savanna even though the acorns are all gone and the the forbs and the the broadleaf weeds are all dead by november it doesn't matter because you still have 970 acres left you, you kind of see where i'm going there yep, i know where you're going so as you um you brought up something real good and, and i i feel this is a method of questioning that not only uh, works with deer hunting and habitat improvement, but in life in general. So in, in the lean manufacturing world, there is a process called 5Y. And you just kind of described it there with, why don't I have any deer on my property? Well, because they're getting shot. Why are they getting shot? Well, because they're on the neighbor's farm. Why are they on the neighbor's farm? Well, because my farm doesn't have the cover required. Why doesn't my you know, you go, you go yep. back five and, and what that is, is a root cause analysis of what the actual problem is. And, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's frustrating or I, hunters get frustrated, put it that way, because they're doing the best. They, and this used to be me. So I'm not trying to come from a point of arrogance because I, I did all this stuff. Yeah. So I used to, this years ago, I used to save up all my money and I'd go to the deer classic my dad and my grandpa, we'd go to the deer classic and I'd listen to all the seminars and I'd look at all the vendors and I'd spend every dime I had <laughs> and it was fun. Yep. But then I would go home and I would plant apple trees and I would do this and I would do this. And I, now it was like basically the shotgun method. And at the end of the season, it was no better than it was the year before, Yep. except all my money was spent and I'd go back to the deer classic and I'd repeat and that would be my cycle. Yeah. Until I started until I like took a step back and said, this is, this is insane. This is, I'm not getting anywhere. And then starting to look at, okay, what actually works? And like you said, the five whys, I never had the lean, the lean manufacturing, but it's why am I not killing deer? Well, cause there aren't any here. Yep. So it doesn't matter how many apple trees I plant or how my rattling sequence works. If there aren't any big bucks here, I can't hunt them and I can't kill them. Right. Okay. Right. Well, why aren't they here? And just, keep going, keep going down that path. Yeah. So 
you know, as you started to progress on this farm that you had started working on, um, you was, you established the thick and thin cutting. Uh, what was the next step after you kind of created these little pockets of thickness on this farm? Um, well, it's, it, it's not done. So it's, right. it's every year. I mean, I have to go, I'm planning on going back there this weekend actually and spending couple days so it's it never ends so i don't want people to think that it just never ends somebody asked me one time well how many hours is it a year mm-hmm. and i and i think i said an hour per acre per year and they were I'm like no way <laughs> yeah but i mean to really go all in and it's it that's probably an exaggeration but if you had 80 acres of timber and you've probably spent 20 30 40 hours in there a year i would say yeah that's to, to get it there. Yeah. So I'm going to be going, going back and I probably already have, Oh, I probably have 30 hours on that farm already this year and I'll probably spend another 20. <clears throat> um, so it, it just kind of never ends. And then of course, uh, my opinion is when it comes to habitat, you should pretend like food plots are illegal to some extent. Pretend like you can't never plant a food plot and work on the other stuff first. Okay. Cause that's got the most bang for the money in my opinion. And it's permanent. And I don't know. It's just, I just have way more luck with the, like the permanent habitat over a food plot. And then yeah. in my mind, the food plot now becomes more of a hunting method. Yeah. It's not really a habitat thing. It's more of a hunting method. It's I can plant two acres of standing corn and then I can come in there in November and December and I can use that as a, a way to attract those deer for a hunting purpose kind of thing. Yeah. And and I think you nailed it. You kind of nailed it there, right? I mean, um, and that was going to kind of be my next, my next question is when it comes to bang for your buck, do do you feel, uh, so I, I take it from, from that comment that habitat trumps food. Well, they need both, but right. most most Midwest settings, there's food available. Right. So like I said, so then food for me just becomes a tool, a hunting tool. Right. That's really what it becomes. They don't need us. There's so much. And not only that, but if you create really good habitat with all that woody browse and stuff, you're giving them half the food because they can't just live on corn, for example. You know, they need, they need like 50-50 woody browse type uh food to eat along with their forbs and their alfalfa and their grains yeah so you have you have to have that uh woody browse and cover and side cover and bedding type habitat anyways and bang for your buck you know i can i can create better habitat and more holding power with a chainsaw than i than i can with you know a cornfield for example Right. And not only that, but if my timber and stuff is wide open, if I have that food source, they might be at that food source in the evening, you know, the last half an hour, but I want to be able to hunt them all day. So, yeah. So when we, when, whenever I've listened to people talk about habitat and, and this is what I look for as a, as a hunter, I go into a property and I look, I'm looking for some kind of edge. And from my experience, deer love this edge 
that you know this hypothetical edge where where open timber meets thick timber or where timber meets uh crp or where um you know deer deer just love edge or you know where a, a swamp meets a a timber any anything like that are are you do you feel that same way and is that kind of the method that you're using when you're going from this this thick and thin uh method yes. yeah yeah so absolutely so so think of it this way let's say you had 40 acres and i'm from north central wisconsin so where i used to live the paper industry was huge so these lumber companies would come in and they would clear cut it they would take 40 or 60 or 80 acres or more and they would clear cut it so when you were done, there wasn't a single tree standing and everything was mowed right to the ground and everything was hauled off. Yeah. That's what a clear cut is. Yep. So with that, you have no edge except for the outside border of where that clear cut is. So when I'm doing this uh, thick and thin pockets, I'm creating probably 40 times more edge than doing a clear cut. Because around every one of these thick, po- thick pockets is now all edge cover. Yeah. And then you go to the next pocket, and it's all edge cover. And you go to the next. If you added that up, if you went, like, on some kind of uh, software program and just added that up, it would be unbelievable how much edge cover you created. And now the, the open spots, and by the way, when I say thick and thin in the thin spots, I'm just not dropping the trees. If I want to terminate them, I can still do that. Yeah, but I'll do more of the hack and squirt, or I'll girdle them and leave them standing, mm-hmm. so that the deer can get in and out of there freely. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to get back to that. Yeah. The other thing, um, a lot of in the Midwest we have farm fields, so you have a you have open, you have open cover row crop, corn, beans, alfalfa, whatever it is, and then you go to mature timber. So that that's what I would call a hard edge, a very hard edge. And there's very little habitat, very little holding power, no bedding cover, nothing along that edge. And going back to my earlier comments, that's where doe and fawn family groups want to bed if you give it to them. Yeah. So I'll do the same thing on those edges. I'll go thick and thin. So I'll hammer the hell out of 15 yards along that edge, and then I'll leave a 10-yard opening. And if there's trees in there, I'm going to terminate. Same thing. I'll girdle or I'll, or I'll girdle and treat the girdle, pack and squirt, whatever. And then I'll do thick again. So I'll go thick and thin and thick and thin all along that edge. And you've heard, you've probably heard this term edge feathering. Yep. That was going to be but my next I, question. Yep. But what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to create a soft edge so that these doe family groups can bed. And if you want to take it one step further, talking about habitat um, work, the best soft edge that I've ever seen in the wild, and so now I try to duplicate it myself, is where you have native warm grasses up to that hard edge, and then you go and you do your hinging and you're thick and thin along this edge. So now you have that soft edge in conjunction with whether it's switch grass or big blue stem, so that grass will stay up in these tops, it won't fall over, and that's like some of the best edge cover that I've ever seen. And it's, it's fast and easy. Anybody can do that. I can, I can feather an edge or, or soften an edge that's 400 yards long in one afternoon. It's so easy to do. 
And so and you're hinge cutting to do it, you're hinge cutting that? these trees into that grass strip. Yeah, so okay. you're going to have you're going to have to you're going to have to one say I'm willing to give up an acre of farmland because when you're dropping the trees out there, yeah. you're obviously going to lose some farm ground. Right. Um but yeah, when you drop these trees into that grass <clears throat> and it's easy to do because in the timber when you're trying to do this, the trees are hanging up you have to find an opening to start with and then they're hanging up and they're not falling where you want them to fall. So it's kind of a, it's, it's harder to do. Yeah. But along the edge, all the trees are leaning out. They're all, they're all leaning out into that field already. So when you make your thick pockets, it's just boom, 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 boom. And then you skip and you boom, boom. Like I said, I can do, I can do a quarter mile in a, in a half a day, like nothing. Yeah. yeah. And it just, and the Dole family groups will just bed right around that. Are you trying to do that in the low spots of the field or just everywhere? I'm trying to I'm trying to do that where I want does and fawns to bed. Okay. So if if there's a spot where I have to use for access, for example, let's say I have to walk down a fence line or one of these edges because that's my access, then I wouldn't do it there. I I surely don't want to create good habitat and attract deer to a spot that I have to go through and bump all the time. Right. So the, the best way to answer that is I'm doing that edge habitat where I want deer to bed. Right. Is, re- is really the answer. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so then you, you've done this, you know, we've talked about this bedding to food pattern. You've identified it. You've started doing the cutting. You've do, you know, you identify what deer like to browse on, what they, you know, what they don't. Um, removing things like that. Um, let's, this is one thing I've noticed in Iowa and, uh, maybe it might be a literal thorn in your side, but in a lot of these, in a lot of timber, uh, that I've hunted in, in the past, there is a lot of multiflower rows because back in the day that used to be a cattle pasture and, uh, now it's overgrown, you know, it's grown up, it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 year old timber, and, and so how does one go in and get rid of an invasive species like multiflower rose or whatever other invasive species there is? Well, I can only tell you what I, what I've had and had to dealt with. So, um, on my 120 acre farm, there's a lot of prickly ash and I don't know that that's necessarily an invasive. I, I guess I'm not a expert on that. I think prickly ash might even be a native species, but it's it's pretty, I mean, to me, it's invasive because if you don't do something with it and you go in and you do a lot of cutting, it'll take over. Yeah. And it's also like a clone uh, tree where they like, they like spout from the roots and they're, they like clone each other, if I'm explaining that right. So if I go into an area and I'm going to do a lot of cutting, for example, and I see prickly ash, in your example, it's multiflora rose. In other parts of the country, it's buckthorn. Buckthorn is just absolutely terrible in the upper Midwest. Like you get in Wisconsin, and there's there's farms in Wisconsin that hardly even have trees anymore. It's all buckthorn. Yeah. But anyways, in the case of this prickly ash, if I know it's there, I won't cut any trees down until I've terminated that prickly ash. And what, what I use for that is... I basil bark treat the prickly ash, so I'll mix diesel fuel with triclopyr. And I think the the brand that I use is Remedy Ultra. 
And again, you can get this from your forester. And that's where I got, I got it from. I got it from uh, the Iowa County forester. I called them and I said, Hey, I got this prickly ash. What chemical can I use to basil bark? Um, treat this stuff. And he recommended that and it works good. But then when you mix this up 50, 50 triclopyrin and diesel fuel in a, in a sprayer, and you just basically low pressure spray the bottom couple inches of the bark layer. You don't have to cut the stuff down. You don't have to hack and squirt. You don't have to do anything. You just basil bark, treat it, and that herbicide will get um, drawn in through the bark, and it'll kill that stuff. What's the purpose of the diesel fuel? I think it's just to thin it down and act as a, um, I think it allows the chemical to more readily Soak absorb in. into the bark. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, because that's triclopyr. That's expensive stuff, too. So you don't, if you... If you mix it 50-50 with diesel, I think you're just, like, more efficient use of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, but, yeah, you can actually, you can, I think you can do that with multi-floral rows. I think you can do it with buckthorn. But my suggestion would be is if you're going to, if you're going to try to eliminate that stuff, do that first before you open up the canopy. Because if you open up the canopy, now you're going to be dealing with 10 or 20 times more trees to have to try and terminate. Or multi-floral rows to have to try and terminate, as opposed to if you did it first, yeah, and then did your habitat work, right? Because right. that's that's what I do. Okay. And so as as then you you know you're weeding out this stuff. Um, how do you know if it's working? I mean, obviously you can sit in a tree stand and you can look at deer, but how are you to gauge success? after you've done some of this improvement work? I think that goes back to our earlier discussion on, on your goal setting. You okay. have to, the hunter or the hunting group um, has to sit down before they start doing this stuff. And they really have to have to decide, you know, what are their goals? Yeah. Is their goal to see more deer? Is their goal is to grow larger bucks? What are their goals? And then that's why they have to use the, like you said, the, I, I just call it, you just have to, you have to ask yourself questions to death. You know, why this and why this and why isn't this working? But it's all based on your goals. So if, if your goal is to see more mature bucks or if your goal is to see any mature bucks and you start doing this habitat work, then three or four or five years from now, you'll know if you're, meeting your goals or not are they showing up on trail camera are you seeing them if not what you what you're doing isn't working yeah and i see a lot of i see a lot of people it's it's kind of disheartening actually because they'll they'll go all in and they'll spend a lot of money and they'll do a lot of things um and five years down the road they're no better off than when they were when they started except they're out 50 grand yeah and it's and it's because they're doing this they're just grabbing stuff out of the air and they're trying stuff and it's it's not really related to what their goals are and what they need to achieve their goals right so at what point then you know we've talked about everything except food plots at this point okay uh, now actually i want to back up just one step uh, i saw a i was on social media earlier this morning drinking my coffee and uh, some guy came in and gave his opinion on cedar trees and, you know, some people say that they're, they're, they're bad for, you know, got to get rid of the cedar trees. Some people like them for that, uh, that cold weather, uh, what do they call those, uh, 
like uh, you know, basically an insulation because it just yeah, draws like thermal cover. Thermal cover, exactly. So, um, what are your thoughts on cedar trees? I think some are good. I think some are very good, uh, especially when you're looking at targeting um, October through. I'm just going to say October through January. Okay. If you're ta- if you're targeting those four months for the best ha- habitat for deer, the best attraction and holding power, I think cedar trees and pines in general, um, some is a good thing, especially if you can mix it and make it kind of a, I don't know how do I want to say this. Um, you can make it like nature would make it. So not, okay. I would never plant pines unless you're strictly tra- unless you're strictly putting in like a row of um, cedars or something like for screening cover for your access. But if you're doing it for habitat, I would never plant pines in a row. It would always be one and then 10 yards away, a group of three and just trying to kind of manipulate or, or do what nature would do. Cause you don't, that's how you see it in nature. Right. But then the other thing is those pine trees, let's say you're going to plant white and red pine and you're going to do it in these pockets. You might have to in 15 years actually cut them down and then plant them again or have a, you know, I wouldn't say never go out and plant 500 of them. If that's your goal is to have this one area where you're going to have, let's say 20 acres of this really good pine, woody browse, warm season grass, kind of a combination habitat for more of a late bedding. If that's what you want to have, that's what you want to accomplish. I would say plant those pine trees over like a 10 year period. So by the time you get your last ones planted, your first ones are 10 feet tall as opposed to planting them all. And now they're all 10 or 15 tall, 10 or 15 feet tall. They're all losing their lower branches and they lose their attractiveness now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. But I, in that, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because here again, it's going back to, um, if my goal is to create a scenario on my farm where I can attract and hold and protect bucks to make it to the next age class, if that's my goal. And I know the only way to do this is to do that and protect them during, let's say, the firearm season in my state. Then this blend of cedars and pines, if I can use that as a tool to attract and hold these deer in that time frame, is a phenomenal way of doing it yeah. as opposed to if you're watching a YouTube video and the guy is saying, no, nope, cut all these pine trees down because look at all these, all this herbaceous stuff that regrows and all these forbs and all these broadleaf weeds that come up. Well, when does that stuff peak in attractiveness? It's in June, July, and August. Yeah. So th- I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong. You just got to understand what you're doing. Right. What you're doing is you're creating an area that maybe had 20 acres of really thick cedars. And if you cut them all down and burn them all and have them all habitat, that's summer habitat, you're, you just spent a huge uh, amount of time and money and you're no farther along than you were before you started. You see right. what I'm saying? Yep. And I, I really think that your method here is something that, that isn't talked about, a lot. I mean, when 
whenever I've heard anybody talk about habitat, especially on this podcast and, and you know, listening to some of the other people that I know uh, talk about uh, uh, habitat, they don't like if you asked, like, I don't care where they're at in the summer. Like people, people would look at you like, what, you don't want them on your, on your property all year round. I don't care because they're not getting hunted that time of year. And so by you saying that, it just, it opens up a different thought process of the decisions that should be made on a habitat level on the properties that you're trying to improve. Right. So it's, it's really not, Hey, I want to, because I don't know, uh, you talked about this earlier when you said, what are the goals? I don't know too many people out there that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to choose between, you know, uh, the hunting season versus, Hey, I just want really good velvet pictures on my trail cameras. Like no one's going to say that nobody cares about that. They yep. want to be able to, to, to have the deer on the property during the hunting season. Yep. Yep. And that, I think that's a big mistake that people make. And um, I think the reason is because there's like, it's almost information overload. There's so much information out there that you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to create better habitat for deer and you're trying to provide food and you're trying to provide cover. Yep. So you're throwing a hundred things at you and you're thinking, I have to do all hundred of these things. I have to plant chestnut trees and I have to have a, an oak savanna and I have to have apple trees and I have to have a water source and you're just going nuts on this stuff. And if you just take a step back and say, well, what are you, what are you doing? There's a difference, I think, between, let's say a guy out there buys a, buys a thousand acres and he says, I'm going to hire somebody. I'm not a deer hunter, but I'm going to hire somebody to manage my thousand acres because I love looking at white-tailed deer. I just love it. Well, the guy that's hired to do that is probably going to want 12-month habitat so that this guy that hired him can watch these deer for 12 months. Yeah. Right? Right. That's a completely different scenario about from the guy that has 30 acres that says, I can't kill or see anything bigger than a three-pointer. Right. And again, I'm not buck shaming three, people who shoot three-pointers. Right. But if that's what that guy bought that 30 acres for and he spent $100,000 to get that 30 acres, then he needs to prioritize his habitat and his food sources and his food plots and even his hunting methods so that during, let's say, a November rifle season, if that's where they're from, their 30 acres or their 80 acres has its peak attractiveness. Everything peaks. The habitat, the food sources, and the hunting pressure is at its lowest level so that they have their highest chances of that three-pointer staying in there during that rifle season. Yeah. that's That's been my whole take probably the last 20 years I've been doing this. Yeah. Where does food then come in? We, you know, we haven't talked about food plots and I, I, I've heard you talk about how you like to do food plots and in, in relationship with destination, destination food plots or destination food sources. Talk to us a little bit about how you incorporate food plots in this thick, thin method that you've in this edge feathering that you've already talked about. So all that thick and thin and edge feathering, that's all that's all what I would call security cover and bedding habitat, which is still half of their food. Yep. So they're, they're still going to want, especially in the Midwest and mixed agriculture properties, they're still going to want to have that lush, lush alfalfa or clover 
uh, soybeans in the summertime, and then they're going to want to have grains, soybeans, or corn in the wintertime if it's available. So for me, because I'm still in this mode of I want my peak attractiveness to be in those four months in the, in the fall, and I think for about 99% of hunters, you're going to want that peak attractiveness with your food plots to be during that gun season, wherever you're from. If it's in Wisconsin, it's over Thanksgiving week. If it's Minnesota, I think it's earlier. Missouri's early. And the reason why is so that you can attract and hold and protect those bucks as best you can during that peak level of hunting when the most of them are going to get shot. Right. So for me, my main food sources are soybeans and corn. And then my green food plots are more transition plots um, that I use for killing them. Gotcha. And then my soybeans and my corn, and I shouldn't say just soybeans and corn, you can plant. I think it's a good idea to plant a half an acre or something like that if you can, or an acre of clover, alfalfa, or even a good uh, a mix maybe even of clover and oats and winter rye and stuff like that. But that's out by your destination plot. And then your transition plots aren't really a food. It's not really a habitat thing. So when I plant my transition plots, it really has nothing to do with feeding deer. It's about coaxing deer through an area, coaxing bucks through an area. There will be a mock scrape there. The transition plot will be, in my transition plots, I've told you this before, they look like, they don't look good. Yeah. And it's that's not the intention. The intention is I want them to come there and nibble a little bit, maybe hit that scrape and then leave. Yeah. So then when I get down in the evening or even in the morning, I don't want those deer hanging around there. Yeah. So yeah. that's, so kind of going back to remember what I was said, saying before, you prioritize your habitat as far as your timber and your cover first. And then I use my food plots to kill deer and to hold deer on my farm so that others can't kill them when they're younger. Yeah. And that's, so that's what I use my food plots for. And this is a, this is a method of everything you've just said that could potentially be applied to very small farms. Absolutely. Yeah. The only difference is when you get really small, um, sometimes there's not enough room to have a destination food plot. Yeah. And sometimes if your neighbor has a 40 acre alfalfa field that butts up to you, then you can use that alfalfa field as the destination food plot, but then just make, make, try your best and make sure that you can create the best habitat so that we're, when they're going to their bedded to feed, even though they're leaving your property in the evening on their evening feeding pattern, that they're coming back to your property because you have the best habitat, the best side cover, the best woody browse, and the lowest hunting pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's, it's just kind of a recipe you can you can implement this anywhere you go. Okay, so we we've talked uh, a lot about your farms and what you do on your farms. You are also a habitat consultant, and you have a, a little uh, business that you go out and you you know you some guy says hey I want to I want to do better I want to make my property better. You go out there and you take a look at it. Um, walk us through from a uh, from a client perspective on what you do you know and, and how the process of getting a, a habitat consultant and what you're what you do 
uh, in relationship with what they want. So that's exactly how you ended that question. The, the first thing is you have to ask the, the farmer or the hunter landowner, you know, why are you calling me? What, are, what do you want to get out of this? Cause they're always different. Mm-hmm. Some hunters want to grow big bucks. Some people want to just see more deer. Some people don't have any nice mature bucks to hunt. I shouldn't say nice. Cause that's, that's buck shaming. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. But some people want to grow bigger bucks and they don't have any. Some people will tell you they have, oh yeah, there's big bucks in the area, but I can't kill them. So that would be a different scenario. But you always have to start with the end. You have to start with what do you want? What if in five years from now, what makes what makes Dan Johnson the happiest hunter he could be on this 80 acres he just bought? Where, where do you see yourself going to bed at night? It's November 10th. You're going to bed. You're smiling ear to ear. What does that look like for you? And that's yeah. where you have to start. <clears throat> and it, a lot of it goes back to, you know, what do you plant in your food plots? Well, you plant in your food plots what what you want to get to uh, to receive your goals or to achieve your goals. Yeah. Where, where do you create your cover? Where are your access routes? Let's find some inside corners. I actually, quite often, I'll actually suggest that hunters build cattle fences, that they'll build a 200-yard cattle fence or a 300-yard cattle fence because it'll be an 80-acre piece in south-central Michigan or southern Wisconsin, and there's no terrain features. So me and you are used to terrain features. We're used to ditches and fence lines and draws and all this stuff there's properties there's i mean i grew up in central wisconsin where there's nothing there's just nothing but flat land it's all dairy so there's not you don't have cows on out on pasture like you do down in southern iowa so you don't have inside corners you don't have fence lines and fence jumps you don't have ditches and and draws and saddles because it's all flat so how do you create structure and edge to hunt well, a lot of it you can do with your habitat and your cuttings, but sometimes installing a 300-yard simulated cattle fence can give you structure because now you can hunt the ends of the cattle fence or you can put a fence jump in and hunt that fence jump. Yeah. So it's a combination of, as hunters, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think it's, I don't think what we want is just the best habitat. I think that's where hunters make mistakes or make a mistake in thinking, I just want the best habitat and the best and the best food plots. Well, that doesn't necessarily give you good hunting. Yeah. What you really want is the best habitat and the best food plots in combination with, okay, how can you use this now as a hunter yeah. so that you're successful? So your kids are successful. So your spouse is successful. That's in my mind, that's what it's all about. And then what, what does success mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then that makes sense to you. Yeah. And so, so then there's really what it is, is it just starts off with a conversation between you and the landowner. And it's just a, a conversation of goals, what your like, what their end goal is. Um, are these goals different throughout the years? Like, do you ever go short-term, long-term? Like, hey, I would like a, here's a five-year plan, and then here's like a 10-year plan? Yeah, yep. And there's also, there's also landowners that say, I want this 
I want this property to also be recreational. Yeah. I want, I want to be able to go out here with my spouse and take a walk every, you know, once a week. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's figure out a good place for you to take a walk, you yeah. know, kind of thing. Or there's a little cabin on my property that I want to be able to use. Okay. Let's, let's talk about when we can use it and how to use it and when not to use it kind of thing. Right. So every, every landowner has different goals and objectives. You know, some guys are fanatics and they'll, and they'll, and I'm, you know, I could probably put myself in that tier of a fanatic. Some guys will say, I don't care what it takes. I want to shoot a big buck. So I don't, I don't care what kind of sacrifices that means. I don't care if that means giving up part of a, of a season. Let's say that's a gun season. I'll give that up because I want to protect deer. I don't want any pressure on my farm. Some people don't want to give up any of that because they want to hunt as much as they possibly can. And all of that is correct. There's no right or wrong. All of it's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot to think about uh, for, for someone. Now, uh, I do have to give you some props here. Uh, you Because you're a land consultant, uh, you, you've had uh, customers from all over the Midwest, it sounds like. If someone wants to get a hold of you to either schedule a, 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 cons, a consult or just pick your brain a little bit, how do they do that? Just go to Full Potential Outdoors dot com read some stuff over send me an email give me a call and then that's like we just got done talking about that's how we start out it's just a conversation gotcha it's just gotcha. a good conversation and i have and i have guys that call and we have a conversation and they say you know what i'm good yeah i just i i'll keep i'll keep doing what i'm doing yeah and that and that's fine too yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Tom, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and uh, talk with us about something that I have no clue about. And hopefully someday, though, uh, I'm going to own a piece of property and I'm going to have you come walk it with me. And then you can uh, I can get I'm going to I'm going to use that friend thing where I say, hey, buddy, uh, I need I need a free consult. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. No, it's all good. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, in another episode in the book. Please go to iTunes and follow the Nine Finger Chronicles. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm banned, so a lot of the content that I put out, you guys probably aren't seeing. Uh, so if you could just go there, and uh, I think there's a, an option to click on the, the the three buttons and make sure that you follow me there as well, where all of my content is automatically sent to you. You can do that, and uh, I would appreciate that make sure you're subscribed make sure you're following along uh, on the uh, rss feed as well whether you download on uh, itunes or any any other place uh, make sure you're subscribed to that and then please go to itunes and leave a five-star review on how badass the nine finger chronicles podcast is man that would really help me out so uh, i appreciate your time thank you very much for uh uh taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast huge shout out to tethered wasp hunt stand and vortex don't uh, forget to go check out fishandwildlife.org other than that have a good day good vibes in good vibes out and we'll talk to you next time